This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Sears Canada employees are looking to continue their health benefits through to October as the company restructures under creditor protection. There's a lot of uh, information about this, and who better to go to the phone to talk about this than Marvin Ryder joins us. Marvin, how are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you. Now, let's, by the way, I should say, uh, are you interested in placing a bit of $400 for the golf tournament? I'm just throwing it out there. Thank you, and normally I would, but believe it or not, a week today I am traveling to Poland. Good for you. Do you need any help with pronunciations? I can help you with that. <laughs> well, I'm going to go see Warsaw and Krakow. Those are the easy ones. Uh, but there's another city I'm visiting, W-R-O-C-L-A-W. It looks like it should be pronounced Rocklaw. Wroclaw. I believe it's Yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, have fun with that one. Thank you. All right, so let's first of all go back. How did Sears get into this situation, first of all? Well, my gosh, you know, there you talk about your crystal ball. Sears Canada has been struggling for the better part of a decade. Um, I actually thought they were going to get into this kind of trouble a few years ago when Target entered, and the reason was that they compete in the middle of this sort of department store world. At the low end, you've got Dollarama and Walmart. At the high end, you've got uh, somebody like the Bay or Holt Renfrew, and they're stuck in the middle, and there's just not a lot of room there in the middle to go. Amazingly, though, it was Target who was kicked out. But nonetheless, Sears sales have been struggling, struggling, struggling. They went through uh, four CEOs in a four-year period. Each one had a turnaround plan, but before they could even begin implementing it, they were gone. And then, of course, at one time, what we'll call the parent company, Sears in the United States, they were in trouble. They had bought Kmart. In Canada, they closed down Kmart, so they were struggling as well, and they were draining off any cash that Sears Canada could generate to help the American operations. This was all sort of a recipe for for bigger problems. And then as this year dawned, back in January, they announced that they would had a poor Christmas season. That's always critical. Half of your sales in retail tend to be done around the Christmas season, and they didn't have a good Christmas. And then they announced this would have been in uh, early May, that they didn't know if they had enough cash just to keep everything going for a year. And so it was three weeks ago in the middle of June that they said, all right, we can't keep the wolves from the door. We're going to go and seek creditor protection. Now, that's something that we in Hamilton are very well familiar with. We watched for the better part of uh, uh, two and a half years uh, Stelco, at that time originally U.S. Steel Canada, go through creditor protection and, and what a drawn-out process that was. Within a week of entering creditor protection, Sears said, you know, the only way we're going to survive is to downsize, so we're going to close 59 stores. We're going to lay off 2,900 workers out of a workforce of 10,000. And then they dropped a couple of other bombshells. They said, well, you know all those workers we're laying off? No severance. We don't have the cash to pay you any kind of severance, so we know you're entitled to it, but we can't pay it. And then today, Sears was supposed to go into court and say, you know, we're, we're so strapped for cash, we can't continue paying the benefits for the retired workers. We, we uh, can't, can't pay special payments into the pension fund, just like Stelco. There's a pension shortfall in their defined benefit pension plan, and they were going to plead poverty. Of course, the workers would have their lawyers. Now, Ted, there's just been an, uh, a big news here just in the last hour. Sears has backed down slightly. They've said rather than cutting all of these benefits immediately, um, they've found enough cash now, God bless them, they have found enough cash to pay those retirement benefits until the end of September and also to make three more payments into the pension plan until the end of September. But after that, as of October 1st, 
they aren't making any promises, and so this court case continues on. How did Sears get into this? You mentioned about Christmas, which is when a lot of retailers make their money. Uh, what did they do wrong, especially in and around the Christmas season, or is that too general of a question? Well, it is in a sense, because what Sears has done wrong, and they've been doing it for nearly a decade or more, is they seem trapped. Um, Sears, Sears seemed to be stuck in the 1980s and 1990s. They really weren't keeping up with, with retail and, and the trends and, and adjusting their stores. Last year, it was last year almost at this time, Sears announced that they were going to do something around the a website of the business. Now, if there was any company that was positioned for the transition from catalog sales to the web environment, it should have been Sears. The Sears catalog being a mainstay when I was growing up. You're too young, Ted, but when I oh, was Oh, no, I, I remember, Marvin. I remember. <laughs> and so they had this new facility. And when that was great. I thought, good, now they're going to at least get advantage of the web sales. They can close some brick-and-mortar stores. But then again at Christmas time, a story about Sears Canada, they weren't delivering. In fact, they were telling people, I know you ordered that item for Christmas, but you're going to get it in the middle of January. You just can't do that. If you're going to be in this web environment, you've got to know how to fulfill those orders as quickly as possible. So they just, I hate to say it like this, but they just keep tripping over their own feet. They can't seem to find any victory anywhere. And, and so this is why they've gone into creditor protection. Now, will this mean the company's going to die? I don't necessarily think so. I think that it is possible you could get to a core size that might survive, but there's going to be a lot of bloodshed in the meantime. Also announced today, by the way, in the courtroom, Ted, is that in those 59 stores they're closing, they're going to have a big liquidation sale starting later this month and hopefully ending by early October. So uh, we have one of those here in the Hamilton area. It's an Ancaster a store, a Sears outlet store, and expect to see some great deals there over the last few months. Did they kind of, Marvin, not really hone in on specialty items? I mean, you talked about the catalog, but you walk into Sears, and there's a whole bunch of things that you can buy, refrigerators and stoves and appliances and, and couches and men's suits and everything else. Did Was this a matter of not changing with the times, as you mentioned, the 1980s, that maybe they should have honed in on being a little more uh, specific? You know, and I wish I could give you this one magic answer. Here's the one thing they did wrong. They had these little interesting pockets. For instance, I'll give you a couple of brand names. Have you ever heard of Craftsman? Yes. That's the Sears tool line, and that is so popular, Sears uh, in the United States has actually spun it out, and you can buy Craftsman tools at Home Depot now. That's how popular that name. Or the Kenmore name, those appliances you talked about, there are actually people who swore by Kenmore quality even though Kenmore washing machines were made by somebody else under the Sears label. So they had little pockets of success. I think the biggest problem for Sears Canada was Sears in the United States. Uh, If Sears Canada could have taken whatever cash it was generating and plowed it back in, I think they could have fixed their own problems. But Sears in the United States said, no, 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 we're more important than Sears in Canada, so give us all the cash. And they started chasing their dreams south of the border. I should also note, Ted, that here in Hamilton we have another Sears store, that's the one at Lime Ridge Mall, right. that actually underwent quite a transformation. Mm-hmm. And sales in that store are actually up 3 to 5% from a year ago. I think there are ways for the company to turn some of these stores around. I actually think they've now found a formula to save some of these stores, but I'm not sure they've got the cash to do it everywhere. So that's why I'm saying they may have to shrink a bit get smaller, and then make those stores work very well. So there may be a way forward, but unfortunately, 
you know, I'm guessing probably by the time this ends, more than half the workforce will be gone. Now, uh, on that note, taking that one step further, um, you talked about Sears Canada, of course, dan- if you will, dancing on the strings of uh, uh, the owners, Sears um, in the U.S. Have we seen the same type of attrition and job losses, especially in the management stage, in uh, Sears south of the border? Yes, and in fact, of the two companies, it's actually Sears Canada, which is healthier than Sears in the United States. I, I would really not be surprised to hear that Sears in the United States is gone before Christmas this year. I, 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 I just can't tell you how bad things are there south of the border. Um, this also is because in the United States, they've just got too much retail. There is something like uh, 100 square feet of retail for every man, woman, and child. Imagine a room roughly the size of your bathroom for every man, woman, and child in the United States. They've just got too much retail space. And so I think there is going to be bigger problems down there. North of the border, where we are, the situation is not that bad. And even when Target left, they've left millions of square feet of retail space. But they have been absorbed not by one company, but by a bunch of little companies. And slowly, that says to me that we're in a different and a better space in retail. But down in south of the border, Sears and Kmart, remember the two are hand in hand, that just I'm not sure there's any great room for them to retrench, and so I would not be surprised to see the whole thing go collapsing. And that's actually not good for Sears Canada because if you're not really paying attention and you pick up a newspaper and hear a story about Sears failing, you might assume it was the Sears you know and love as Sears Canada when, in fact, it could be Sears in the United States. That's the problem when you use the same name in both countries. Well, I'm going to ask you, to, as, as we always do, to put on your, your uh, soothsayer hat here. If, as you mentioned, Sears Canada does, let's say, does go under, and you're talking about creditor protection, is there a company that you think will come in and swoop up the um, what's left uh, and not necessarily reopen as Sears Canada, but open up as something else? Mm-hmm. So the first answer to that is no. I don't think anybody wants that number of stores. So this is not quite like when Zeller's closed and Target swooped in and says, well, we'll take 173 of those stores from you. I do think there's an American company that is looking to come into Canada. That's also uh, a place that competes against Target in the United States. It's called Kohl's, K-O-H-L-S. Interesting. They have indicated they're interested in coming into Canada, but... When they would take a look at the Sears locations, nearly 200 locations, I think they're probably interested in 10, 15, maybe 20. So I could see them coming in. And these would be flagship stores like the Sears at at Eaton's uh, Eaton's Center in Toronto or in big malls in Vancouver, Montreal, Edmonton, places like that. I could see them coming in. I think the others, the challenge is going to be for uh, those people who own those spaces because malls rent out that space to find other people to get them interested in it. So, uh, as you mentioned, and we uh, will have the story through the afternoon on CHML News, that Sears has reached a compromise with the employees. So they, the employees will be getting some of their benefits as well as payments to their defined benefit pension plan. Very quickly, Marvin, because we have used this term a lot with Stelco and what happened, and people hear defined benefit pension plan versus the other ones, and they get confused. Can you... Uh, yep. Talk about the difference in the two, just so people know what's going on. Well, I always think of the defined benefit plan as the traditional plan. That is one that I pay a certain amount into at every paycheck, and then when I go to retire, I have a defined benefit. I get a certain guaranteed pension every month for the rest of my life until I die. The defined contribution plan is now the thing that all companies are trying to move towards, and that one 
you contribute some money. I, the company, are going to match the money, but I give it to you and you manage it. The employee manages it. Hey, if you don't manage it well and you shrink the funds, well, that's your problem. Of course, if you manage it better than the company can and you can retire on even more money, it isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it transfers the risk of the plan from the company to the employee. Thus, people who have defined contribution plans, you're never going to hear about any shortfall because they don't have any responsibility anymore. Marvin Ryder, business professor at McMaster University. Uh, have a great time in Poland, Marvin. I know you'll love it out there. Thank you I'm for the time. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks very much, Marvin. Bye safe, bye safe trip. Marvin Ryder with an insight on what's happening at Sears Canada. Again, a compromise reached with employees today in court over its plans to suspend some benefits as well as special payments to the defined benefit pension plan. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Now I want to talk about something that um, is... um, Rather interesting to watch. The head of WestJet has stepped up his fight against the growing push to unionize the airline staff, telling them to resist organized labor's pitch because it will eat into their paychecks. Joining us to talk about this is Christo Avalis, the labor and poly history, poly sci history professor at uh, Queen's University. Christo, how are you, sir? Uh, great. How are you? Excellent. So first of all, I, I wanted to ask, I understand you've got a beautiful new football stadium out there. Richardson Stadium doesn't look like the way it did. I understand it's quite nice. Yeah, they've put a lot of work into it. It's, uh, it's really turning around. I used to live just on the tower overlooking it, and uh, you know, it was a little rough, but I think <laughs> it, uh, it, was, it was worth putting some money into it. I remember walking in there thinking, this looked this, like circa 1972. I mean, I'm digressing a bit, but I understand it is gorgeous. So let's uh, talk about this now. First of all, let's kind of uh, find out, um, why. Uh, any ideas why WestJet employees would want to, in essence, unionize? Well, you know, there's a, there's a real sense that, you know, like with, with anything, there, there's a lack of control over one's position in the workplace. Generally, that's how it, it, it goes. You know, there's a, a dissatisfaction with wages or with benefits or with scheduling or with, you know, perceptions of favoritism. These are the kind of things that happen in any kind of workplace. And in WestJet, they've kind of long had this message, both internally, but also how they've kind of sold themselves to consumers is that, well, all of our staff are owners. Like, you know, they have shares in the company, but a lot of the workers are saying effectively they're still day-to-day employees like anybody else and that, you know, a union would help address some of those concerns. Now, from what I understand in an email that was sent last Thursday, their CEO, Greg Sorensky, there's said there's five unions trying to certify several groups of WestJet workers. Now, this started when their pilots agreed in May to join the airline pilots association any idea what those five unions would be um it would really depend i mean i wouldn't want to go out and 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 necessarily speculate but because you know an airline is such a varied organization you have clerical workers you have you know people who you know lug the uh the luggage you have pilots you have all sorts of people in that sense it could be any kind of variety of unions that you know you would look for instance i would say as a general rule you might see some of the same unions that would be working within Air Canada. Um, but you might have, you know, quite general unions like Unifor, uh, you know, that represent a lot of, you know, big bargaining units. It, within the case of pilots, you often have 
you know, very, very smaller, kind of more limited bodies that represent specialized workers. Now, the uh, the email from Greg Zaretsky took uh, specific aim at some of the union dues. He said WestJet employees stand to pay $16.6 million a year if the unions succeed. He says money that goes toward union bureaucracy and a part to other organizing efforts at other companies. Uh, do you buy what he's saying? Well, you know, in a sense, I mean, when you when you join a union, you you do pay union dues, and I mean, I'm not sure if his calculation is correct or not, but you know, the argument from the union would be that, in, in a sense, you gain more from the collective bargaining process over the medium to long term um, than you do pay in dues. You know, for instance, if you're you know you pay say two percent in dues, but your wages go up four percent, then for the worker, their gain is two percent, and in terms of you know, this money will be used to organize at other workplaces. To a certain degree, that's true, but I guess the union would say that, you know, there's a social value to having more and more workers be a part of the labor movement, and, you know, those in organized workers should kind of pay to help, you know, you know, regenerate that process. Uh, he goes on to say they get nearly $17 million of your money, $425 million over a 25-year career. Um, and I guess this is the question, and you've uh, kind of touched on it. Uh, he said the question we're asking you, urging you to ask yourselves, is it better to get a check than a bill? And I guess that's what people have to deal with, isn't it, when they have to sit down and decide, do we want the union or not? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a discussion people have to have. There's a pure monetary value to a union in many cases. Um, you know, and, and obviously the studies are done by, by, by groups that are generally pro-labor, but they can say that, you know, people in a union make on average X amount of dollars. I think it's $5 more an hour in Ontario, and the dues are not $5 an hour. In that sense, the value could be there. But, you know, even beyond that, there's non-monetary value to unions as well. There could be better job security. There could be better you know, issues around scheduling, let's say it allows you to spend more time with your family or allows you to work around daycare concerns. These things are purely, in, in an indirect sense, non-monetary, but they could have great value to, to various segments of the workforce. Now, you can uh, imagine that the president of CUPE said that the email said he is way out of whack when it comes to understanding unions. Mark Hancock said he's trying to intimidate workers. Is that a harsh statement? You know, you have to be careful in some of these things. One of the things that labor legislation, both in a federal sense and in a provincial sense, um, is that, you know, once a worker or a group of workers kind of make an intent to form a union, you know, employer retaliation is, is not tolerated. The Department of Labor and the unions involved would be, you know, highly critical of that. You know, so is it is kind of drawing a line. It, it's one thing for the employer to, in a sense, give his or her opinion on, look, I, I, I don't see this as the best option, or, and then say, you know, lay off people who are, you know, union organizers. And I don't think we've seen the latter. But in a sense, it is a kind of form of, if not in, even in a legal sense, it is kind of in a form, uh, you know, uh, an attempt to kind of dissuade the value of the union on behalf of the employer. And I can see why that, why that would create tension. And I find it interesting that uh, the people from QP said uh, they only campaign at companies after workers approach them. As you mentioned off the top, uh, is this maybe sending a message to WestJet uh, brass that maybe this company isn't quite uh, as rosy as people think it is? Well, I think that's, you know, I think on the first hand, you're right. I mean, in many cases, you know, workers uh, approach unions. There are some, some, some cases where, for instance, you know, 
there would be two kind of unions that could plausibly represent a bargaining unit. So they might go to multiple unions, and frankly, the workers could say which union would better represent us. I mean, in terms of what this is about WestJet, I think there is this image that, you know, Air Canada gets a lot of flack uh, you know, from, from travelers and from, from people. But I think that WestJet kind of gets away with a lot of stuff because unlike Air Canada, they, they don't have a lot of the obligations of a former crown corporation that's been privatized that has to kind of fly all of these flights and whatnot. And I think that, you know, WestJet is the relative new kid in, in town. And I think a lot of the perceptions are that maybe they're not so different from, from other airlines. And I think, you know, that's bleeding down into their, into their labor force that, you know, maybe our, our employer isn't any different than Air Canada. And Air Canada's workers are unionized. Why shouldn't we be unionized? As well? I, I'm just wondering then, uh, is Air Canada's business model um, not necessarily outdated, but is it out of whack given what's going on uh, in the world today? I mean, I'm not sure, but their, their stock prices, uh, to my knowledge, is, is, is skyrocketed over the last, you know, months, you know, multiple times. You know, I think uh, less than a few years ago it was somewhere around $2, and now it's approaching 20 I think um, in that sense... Unionization has not hurt uh, Air Canada workers. I mean, in terms of its business model, I'm not sure. I don't know about the. I'm not an expert on you know uh, unionization rates on on global uh, airlines, but airline industries uh, you know are certainly more unionized than say retail outlets. So you know WestJet forming a union would actually probably put them in line with many you know European and and, and airlines like Air Canada. Whereas a you know say unionizing Walmart would be a kind of run against the grain because there are very few unionized retail outlets nowadays. Our guest is Christo um, Avalis, uh, Avalis, rather, from Queen's University, labor and poly history professor, talking about WestJet employees getting an email from their CEO basically saying, um, learn your facts and maybe not unionize. I'm wondering then, and, and you kind of touched on this already, um, when... A company, when workers decide that they want to form a union, in the past, whether they've uh, gone public with it or not, or or has it been proven, but sometimes employers, and as you you touched on, sometimes not necessarily try to get even, but try to find the rabble-rousers, try to find the people responsible, and then deal with them with some things that probably aren't above board. Is that still the case now? Um, and legally, employers can't do that, can they? No, legally they can't. Once, uh, you know, once a union is, you can't, you can't do that. I mean, the employer could, of course, argue like, okay, we didn't fire this person because they were a union organizer. We fired them because they were late, et cetera, et cetera. But there will be increased scrutiny on any kind of decision in that sense. And part of the challenge is that, especially at least in Ontario for federal, for provincial jurisdiction, it differs province to province, but in Ontario the process is you have to get a certain amount of, of people in the proposed bargaining unit to sign a card. And then once those cards have been verified, the Labor Board will schedule a date for an election, um, uh, a vote, if you will, uh, where all the people in the bargaining unit, including people who didn't sign cards, can vote yes or no on the union, and the result of that vote will determine the union. So there is that intermediary period, and one of the criticisms uh, of the current uh, two-stage process from labor is that it creates this real sense that there's this window of kind of intimidation that can happen in informal and and formal settings, and that some people support just a a system where if you can get half of the people or 60% of the people in the local to sign a card, then the union should kind of automatically be formulated, and that would limit to some degree the ability to 
kind of levy this intimidation. Taking this one step further, there are those that say uh, there is no use for unions uh, anywhere um, today. Uh, kind of a broad question. I don't know if, if you can talk about that, but uh, have unions outlived their purpose? I don't think so. I mean, you know, some people will, will argue that they have. I mean, some people will say that, you know, you know, we needed unions in the 30s, and then some people back in the 30s, as a historian, I see this, you see it in newspapers in the midst of the Great Depression saying, well, we needed unions in the 1870s, but we don't need them anymore. You know, there was a real sense that unions have always kind of been seen by employers and by some segments of, of working people as being something of the past, but I feel they're just as relevant today. I think in a couple senses, you know, unions are, to a certain degree, a result of, of dissatisfaction in the workplace, but I think unions are also a manifestation of a desire for democracy. We really believe in a democratic society in Canada. Um, we, you know, elect our prime minister, at least indirectly through our MPs. We really have this sense that, you know, we don't tolerate dictatorship, we don't tolerate autocracy, yet so many of our workplaces... Um, you know, especially non-unionized workplaces, uh, are, are run as little, little autocracies in a sense, where the boss kind of makes all the decisions and the workers don't have very much power. And I think a union is a response to bring some of the great traditions of our democratic society into our workplaces. And I think that still has value. Our guest, uh, Christo Avalis from uh, Queen's University, labor and political history professor. We'll keep an eye on uh, what happens as far as this uh, bid from, uh, from WestJet, where the, uh, the email has been sent. Now we'll see how the employees react to this. Thanks for taking the time uh, to join us this afternoon. I know across southern Ontario we're getting a lot of rain. Hopefully the sun will shine and we'll have, a, have ourselves a great weekend. Thank you for the time. Fascinating chat. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Interesting topic. An Australian mommy blogger, Constance Hall, wants everyone to know that she swears in front of her children and doesn't care what other people think. So, time to bring into the program Maureen Dennis, mom of four, parenting expert and founder of WeWelcome.ca. And all I can say, uh, Maureen, is how the blank are you? <laughs> awesome how are you doing excellent so okay that's 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 how i'm starting to get off your immediate response to what this mommy blogger constance hall said on facebook is this seriously a topic yeah yeah uh-huh um yeah no i i mean uh heck yeah i i we are good parents who definitely swear and so i'm, I'm actually surprised at the response i know some people are quite up in arms over it now, she took to uh, Facebook last week to share her uh, parenting choice. Uh, one of the things that she put on Facebook was, uh, I justified to myself, I can only say I swear for emphasis. I never swear at anybody. You'll never catch me calling someone a name or screaming F off. It's for F sakes or what have you. Does it really matter why she's saying it in front of the kids? Well, I suppose what she's trying to say is that she's not swearing at her children. Right. So she may be swearing in front of them, but she's not swearing at them. Um, and I get what she's I get why she's trying to differentiate um, that that way. However, I guess the you know, everyone's sort of just understanding that she is swearing in front of her children. So therefore, her children are hearing her use those words. Now, uh, she also went on to say, um, I guess Arlo is one of her kids. Um, uh, he's been dropping, as she says, a few bombs as new mates because she's in Australia. Doesn't mm -hmm. mind throwing around these particular words and all they're rocking, uh, f uh, they're feeling cool, as they said. 
whatever. She said, does it bother me? Not much. Meanness would bother me much more. So I'm curious if they're driving in the car and somebody cuts her off and she drops the F-bomb and then the kids say it later. Um, I'm, I'm surprised she's saying that that's not bothering her. Well, you know what the reality is, is like, that's part of what kids do to push their boundaries, right? And kids have those those moments where they're friends, where they're going to try out that language. Whether their parents say it or not, it's not like they aren't exposed to um, those different words uh, throughout their life. And I'm not sure how old her children are, but, you know, I have a 13-year-old, and we have these conversations all the time. I mean, we his grandparents, his parents, everybody, we, we've never um, really, you know, cautioned them on that these are these are adult words that we can use and when you're 40 and 50, you're welcome to use them as selectively as we do. So, you know, but he's he's 13 and he's a teenager and with his buddies, I'm sure he uses that language, but he also knows that he is not to use it with um, in the presence of adults or with any authority figures that it's disrespectful well, and that there is a professional level that that he fully understands. And I think that is what's important to instill in children that, you know, that there's ways you carry yourself and you present yourself um, regardless of what language you're using. You know, you you talk about your 13 year old, but what happens, for example, now um in your case, let's just use use an example. If you have a, yep. a kid that's at the time four or five years old and you're driving and then you drop the F-bomb and your child says it later and you say you shouldn't say that. And then they look at you and say, but mommy, you said that. 13 is one thing, but how about the, the early part, the early developmental stages? Well, I have four kids. So 13 is my oldest. And yep. I have an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. Uh-huh. And I guarantee every single one of them have uh, have used it, especially about you know the age of about two, because um, they're just little parrots at that point, right? Uh-huh. Um, and no, they learn from that age that it's not appropriate for them to use that language, and they learn that um, from day one. So although we may say it, it's not an option for them. That's what I'm saying. They have to learn that those words and the way that they do and, and uh, carry themselves have to to be part of what you parent them. Just because I do it, I'm a grown-up. I do a lot of things. I drive, I drink wine, I do all these things that you can do at some point, but you are not allowed to do it now. I'm wondering um, these days, and I think I know the answer to this, um, (laughs) television shows, social media, YouTube, all that stuff, how difficult is it to be a parent and control what kids say when all that stuff is when they're being inundated with all this um, all this social media and television activity? Well, that's just it. That's what I'm saying is that the kids are going to be exposed to it. So what the it's important for parents to understand that they need to explain when is appropriate if if in their mind ever to use such language. And there are many things, there are many words that I find more offensive than certain swear words that we use, um, you know, definitely more often than others. And, and there's a whole gamut of language that we need to teach our children is under no circumstance appropriate. And that sometimes, you know, that this is maybe something that if you're, when you're older or, you know, as a teenager you're using with your buddies, but you know you would never ever say it to a teacher or someone or an adult in any way that way. So these are these are the things that we have to instill in our children beyond the fact of, like, well, if I don't swear in front of them, they'll never learn those words because that's just not that's not that's just not real. 
one of the things that uh, jumped out at me yesterday, and I don't know how aware you are of, of the situation, it, it did happen in Toronto yesterday, and it's the Floyd Mayweather-Connor McGregor uh, news conference, uh, so to speak, in advance of their fight in Las Vegas. And there were, I'm sure that there were younger kids in that audience yesterday because it was a, basically a free event. But basically the two uh, fighters got up and there were a lot of, a lot of swearing in it. And even somebody my age, like, like if if need be, if I'm in a bad mood and something happens at work, I can swear like the best of them in the newsroom. But I was thinking, how inappropriate and how tough would it be if you were a parent and you took your kid to this event, not necessarily thinking that it would be like this, but you heard the whole obscenity-laced news conference. How tough is it to kind of tell kids that's not appropriate? You know, it is tough. I mean, there there's... Again, those are grown-ups who um, I'm not as familiar with it, so yep. I can't speak to exa- it exactly. Yep. But you know, if there, you know, you could be in a restaurant and some some guy next to you is using terrible language. Um, there, there's, you know, it's, it's having that conversation with them to say like, "Wow, did that make you feel uncomfortable? Was that inappropriate? Well, were they putting on an act? Were they angry? What was the situation behind it? And um, you know, do you think that that made them look better or worse?" And then they start to see, oh, well, you know, I don't think they really came off very professional um, or, you know, I don't think I really liked that. Or, you know, is it more of an act? Right. When you uh, you, say, you said you had four kids, the oldest is 13 and the youngest is five. What about in the schoolyard? Uh, there are sometimes not. Well, who knows? It, maybe ECE or kindergarten or grade one or two that kids sometimes Say something if they're playing with their friends or they call somebody a name or what have you. In your experience, is that more prevalent now than maybe when you were growing up? Um, <laughs> from, our, from my Scottish-Irish family, uh, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think, that, I think that there are more sensitivities to different language. And so, like, that's what I'm saying. Beyond swear words, there are words that are used that um, you don't want your child to repeat. And so there's a larger conversation about, you know, words that hurt people's feelings, words that are offensive, words that have, that children don't understand. My five-year-old um, was asking me how her fingers can say a swear word. Really? So explain that one, right? Where'd that you know, come I from? Said, oh, I, the schoolyard, uh-huh. right? So, so she's, she's holding up each finger individually and asking me which one's the square finger, Right. So you have to, these are the, it's going to come up. So you have to have those conversations and say, you know what? Raising your middle finger is offensive to people. Do not do it. She's like, oh, okay. And she's fascinated by the fact that her fingers <laughs> could tell somebody something inappropriate. I'm just wondering, and I'm not going to, um, I was going to use the term point the finger, but that bad pun. <laughs> but, um, okay, I'll use it. Um, is it easier then to point the finger at the parent of the kid who taught your little one about the middle finger that may be saying they're not doing their job parenting? Or I'm wondering if maybe they'd be totally surprised that their kid is the one that's uh, learning this and teaching this. Oh, have no doubt that she probably went and told five other kids that, you know, your fingers can say swear words. Did you know? Because um, she is so fascinated by it. So I don't think, I don't take offense that I don't, you know, I, the, the whole thing about judging and shaming parents, there's just way too much of it. I, you know, it's, it would be better to look at it and say, hey, you know what? Um, did you know that, that this is what they were talking about? Just in case you want a heads up, 
that uh, you might want to explain to your child that that's inappropriate, right? So it's more of the parents, like, you know, communicating together that, hey, did you know what they were talking about this or doing that? So that rather than pointing the finger and being like, oh, my God, your child taught my child that their middle finger is, you know, a swear word. Maybe I'm being a little naive here because we have uh, had uh, two beautifully grown daughters. One is in her early 30s. One is in her mid-20s. And it's been a while since I have been uh, a parent of a school-age uh, uh, child. But when you talk about the whole parent-shaming thing, um, I'm, I'm a little surprised by that. Is that verbally? Is that on social media? Is this a bigger thing now than maybe it was before? Because that, that one surprised me a little bit. Oh, yeah. It's a huge thing now. Um, it's it's interesting. I think part of it is through social media, for sure. Um, you know, I think we've all sort of, you know, judged and you look back into, you know, even maybe to my grandmother's days and whatnot and the gossip about, oh, did you see this? And she had this car in her driveway and, you know, and oh, she had. But now it's to the point where every single thing, because you share so much of your life, there's far more, much more to judge. Right. And you may not know the context of much of what's going on. And, and so from social media perspective, there's a lot of, well, isn't her life perfect? Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot more social media content now that reflects sort of like, I only want to share the good. Uh, but people then judge you for that. You, oh, well, isn't her life perfect? It's, it just goes on and on and on right now. And it could be from lifestyle choices body shaming, parenting tactics, everything you can think of, um, you put your, the more you put out there, the more people are going to judge you. Wow. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm actually uh, find this study interesting, and I don't know if you've, you've heard about it. There was a study a couple of years ago which looked at children aged one, of course that's a little young, but one to 12, found that swearing only rarely resulted in negative repercussions. Violence was never observed once it was just basically curse words were mostly used for a positive reason. And as you say, kids may use that word and then they find it funny when mommy goes, oh, you shouldn't have used that word. I, I think that's what they're saying in this survey, is it not? It could be. It could be. It's hard to know. And, and you know what, there's, there's a real difference um, with what people find and will consider a curse word. I mean, there's, you know, our... our, our basic one, <laughs> a, tr a tricky topic to say on radio. Um, and then there are many others that people also take into consideration um, as offensive and inappropriate words. So, you know, when you look at how the child is using them, um, if they say, oh, don't, and they do it in a really cute way. I mean, there's tons of videos online where kids say adult type things that people think are funny. And you're, anytime you're going to laugh at something, you're giving them positive feedback on something, they're more likely to do it again. So, you know, when your two-year-old says something, you know, ah, duck, mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, <laughs> oops, let's, let's, you know, let's be a little bit more clear on that. They're not allowed to say that. Then, you know, it is important to, to say those words and not just laugh and get it on video um, or do it real quick and then have the conversation. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, I, they're exposed to it from that early age. So that's why the survey would go back to, uh, or the study would go back to, um, you know, being one years old. Maureen Dennis, uh, I know that you're busy. The mom of four, parenting expert and the founder of WeWelcome.ca. Thank you for the update. Uh, by the way, um, I, I have to ask, uh, the first time you heard any of your kids with uh, a foul word, 
what went through your mind and what was your reaction the first time? <laughs> when my son said uh, effing dogs, both my husband and I and my parents all looked at each other and were like, oh boy, he listens. <laughs> <laughs> so which means you have to take your stuff behind closed doors, right? We had to clean it up a little bit and uh, and have that conversation, but he was probably just about two years old, and uh, that was the first time he definitely was listening to what we were saying. <laughs> Keep your the voice down. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the time, Maureen. Best of luck. It's been a joy talking with you. Pleasure. All right. That's Maureen Dennis, the, uh, the mom. <laughs> Her... Her kid said effing dogs. I find that rather amusing. He's two years old. So there you have it. If you swear in front of your kids or your kids swear in front of you and they're little, don't laugh. Just tell them it's not appropriate and tell them why. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.